0: Hello, and welcome to the 43rd episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Corr, host of the Popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published this May and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertpearlmd.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean?
1: Jeremy, the combination of the Delta variant and persistent vaccine hesitancy has put the United States in a state of seemingly perpetual infection. 83% of new infections based on genetic sequencing of positive cases are the Delta variant, rather than the alpha that had nearly completely replaced the first cor- COVID-19 coronavirus, as you remember, several months ago. In fact, as recently as a month ago, we talked on this show about the Delta rising rapidly in prevalence and predicted that it would become the dominant strain But at that time, it represented less than 10% of total infections. The fact that it's now over 80% in one month tells listeners how quickly a variant that is twice as transmissible will spread. As a result of the Delta variant and its ease of transmission, the number of new cases is higher in almost every state. And as the consequence would have been fewer than 10,000 new cases per day, is averaging above 50,000 and approaching 100,000 on some days, although the daily deaths remain in the hundreds, not in the thousands. The reason that the increase in mortality continues to lag new infections is twofold. First, for the half of Americans vaccinated, although they can become infected, their risk of dying from any of the currently existing variants remains extremely low. And since those individuals, in the half of the population who are unvaccinated tend to be younger than the nation as a whole, they have a reduced chance of dying when they become infected. Eliminate half of the population from dying due to the vaccine and the death rate falls. Put those less likely to die in the unvaccinated half and it declines further. What we can expect, however, is that deaths will rise in the future, even if the rate of increase is much slower than we saw at the start of the pandemic. To some extent, vaccination has transformed what had been an epidemic to something more akin to a chronic disease. Although in the short run, that's great. Fewer people will die. Over time, it's worrisome since all it would take is a viral mutation that makes the pathogen resistant to the current vaccines, and like the embers from a forest fire, the problems of the past would be reignited with a huge loss of life and need for economic shutdown once again. The Delta variant continues to spread around the world with Indonesia now replacing India and Brazil as the place with the greatest number of new cases and daily deaths. And a next variant called Lambda is increasingly being identified in South America. As we've said in previous shows, we're in a world of the haves and have-nots. The countries that have high vaccination rates and those that have not been able to protect its people. The growing vaccination rates in the US has allowed restaurants, stores, and movie theaters to be open without restrictions in most areas. It has led Canada, which has an even higher vaccination rate than the U.S., to announce that vaccinated Americans would be allowed beginning August 9th to enter the country after more than a year of shutdown, although a negative COVID-19 test at the time of entry will be required. The U.S., however, has not yet reciprocated at relaxing our borders, And at least in the short run, there's no plans to do
0: so. Robbie, listeners really enjoyed our last program that focused on the Delta variant. Several people have asked for updates on the implication of this new viral stain for people who are being vaccinated. Where does that stand? Jeremy, we're
1: in an area of uncertainty at this point, particularly around the need for a third vaccination shot. And the recommendations are likely to evolve as we learn more about the new variants. To understand what's happening, let's look at three subgroups of the population. First, there are the people who have been vaccinated with either Moderna or Pfizer and received two shots. They are well protected against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. Only about 1% of deaths currently are happening in this half of the population has been vaccinated and only about 3% of the hospitalizations come from this part of the populace. And since the individuals in this 50% of people who have been vaccinated as opposed to not vaccinated are likely to be older with more chronic diseases, we'd actually expect the hospitalization death rates to be dramatically higher than 50% rather than in the very low Single digits. The recent debate for this vaccinated group was sparked by Pfizer. The company came out and talked about planning to request FDA approval for a third shot. The reason the company provided was they had data that showed a decline in circulating antibodies among individuals who had been previously vaccinated. In response to this, Planned request. both the CDC and the FDA said that neither saw a need at this time for a third vaccine. But as so often happens when it comes to coronavirus, there are many subplots. There are the skeptics of the drug industry who point to the massive revenue that Pfizer would receive if annual boosters became standard practice. And then there's the reality that providing the vaccine in the US through a third shot would generate twice the dollars than given the same vaccine in a third world country, a place where the acute threat and daily mortality is so much higher, but the reimbursement rate much lower. And then there are the political daters who feel the response by the CDC and FDA is political. They see this resistance through a conspiracy lens. Maybe they say it represents fear by the government officials that the unvaccinated will become even more skeptical of vaccines if the FDA starts to recommend a third dose before it gives final approval to the vaccine overall. And they wonder if this represents elected officials bending to global criticism about how the US has guarded such a large share the vaccine, and they worry that it'll be hard to defend protecting the American people when populations in other countries remain vulnerable. What's most interesting, however, is how publicly the FDA said no and how quickly it said no to this request when, as we discussed in a previous episode, it approved an Alzheimer medication despite far less evidence that it worked, and against the unanimous opinion of its scientific advisory committee. To me, when I look at that situation, it's culture happening and it's worse. Putting the pieces together, most policy experts do not feel that either receiving a third shot of the currently available mRNA vaccines or encouraging companies to make a new vaccine specific to the mutations on the Delta variant is needed at this time. Although both could change in the future if data show the virus becoming more problematic for individuals who've already received the first two shots. And to this end, already other countries, including Great Britain, France, and Israel, have begun to administer a third shot, at least to high risk individuals and groups. The second group of people, besides those who've received two doses of Moderna or Pfizer, are the 13 million Americans who have received the one dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Here, the uncertainty about a booster shot is significantly greater. The reason is that this vaccine, the one made by J&J, isn't as effective as the other two at preventing disease, and it seems to be even less effective relative to the Delta variant than the other two. The concern grew last week when a study from the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory was posted online showing that the antibodies produced after one shot of the J&J vaccine was significantly less than after either of the two shot vaccine regimens. And this is where the controversy over this J&J vaccine originates. First, it's unclear how much difference a higher antibody level means in clinical practice. Obviously, more is better. But as long as a vaccine keeps people over the threshold required to avoid severe disease, lower levels might be just fine. Second, circulating antibodies are just one of the ways that the human body protects against infection. And these other defenses weren't tested by the researchers. Third, there's data that show the protection that J&J vaccine produces continues to rise over time. And without more information, it's uncertain exactly where and when in the time course following vaccination the blood that was used to test against the virus was obtained. Then there are the underlying questions as to why the J&J vaccine is a one dose, while the other vaccines are two doses. The simplest explanation is that these were the assumptions used by the manufacturing companies during the phase three testing. Of course, there were early data that J&J used that created the protocol of a one dose, But had the scientists at the time been aware that two doses could potentially have been better, they might have set it up and planned to follow a two-dose regime similar to the other companies. As such, it's simply possible that we're seeing an historical anomaly and that the J&J vaccine is the equivalent of the other two It's just that it's the equivalent of what would happen after a single shot and with two doses of the J&J that it could be, it might be the same as the Moderna and Pfizer's. Now to listeners, this may sound unscientific and arbitrary. And of course it has some of those features, but that's how science progresses. Hypotheses are made and tested. And once those results are in, new ones are generated and recommendations evolve. Remember that almost all vaccines that we administer to kids include more than one shot, even when they're gonna provide lifelong protection. And as such, two shots might be the optimal approach or even potentially three shots. At this point, we just don't know. And if a third shot is going to be recommended for the J&J recipients of the first one, we can't even be certain whether it should be the same vaccine or one of the others. So far, policy experts are telling those who have been vaccinated to hold off. At The same time, the people who have received it are becoming increasingly anxious about what to do. Jeremy, I can't offer medical advice specific to this question, but I can offer my thoughts on what I would do if I had received the j j vaccine rather than the two-dose mRNA vaccine that I did. If I had multiple chronic diseases, I would talk to my personal physician about this new study and see if he or she would recommend additional protection. In that circumstance, I'd lean towards getting a second shot, either of the J&J or one of the other vaccines, whatever was easier to access. Under this set of circumstances, the risk of another vaccination seems minimal, but the threat of not doing so would be much greater. On the other hand, if I were healthy, I'd probably wait for more clarification about the efficacy of the vaccine and the policy expert recommendations. The reason would not be any kind of fear about the risk from the vaccine, but I wouldn't want to make a decision now and then learn more about it later and have to make still a further choice. When it comes to vaccinations and third doses, there's an additional group of people. They're the ones who remain unvaccinated. They haven't had the first or the second dose to say nothing of the third. And here there's no uncertainty. They should get vaccinated and the sooner the better. With 150 million Americans having received one of the shots, there's no question that it works. And the risks of getting vaccinated are very, very low. Although I predict that the overwhelming majority of listeners have been vaccinated, I'd like to hear from those who remain hesitant. What is standing in your way? If it's the logistics about transportation or work restrictions, that's important to know. As a nation, we should be able to easily resolve the difficulties. If it's something else, please explain. Hopefully you already understand the dangers that lurk when people aren't vaccinated relative to needing hospitalization, and dying. What's the data that you follow that indicate the danger of the vaccine is higher than the risk of getting the disease and developing a serious complication? What data would help you better compare the two sets of risks between the disease and the vaccination? I understood well the fears that existed when the first vaccines were being administered. We simply didn't have enough data to know what would happen. And I understood the fears that pregnant women had when the vaccine was first being talked about, since it takes nine months to be sure that everything turns out well. But we've crossed those thresholds. Listeners who are unvaccinated please go to the Fixing Healthcare website and leave a message. Explain your fears and the data you'd like to see before deciding that you'd be willing to go ahead with vaccination. Your privacy will be maintained.
0: Robbie, can you explain in greater detail why you think the FDA would approve a drug for Alzheimer's when there's little scientific evidence that it would help and some serious risks but refused to support Pfizer's recommendation for a COVID-19 vaccine booster when they had scientific evidence of its efficacy and a global pandemic is killing tens of thousands of people a day. Uh, What's the difference in reasoning here? Why, Why is this happening?
1: Jeremy, it's all pretty illogical until you factor in the cultural issues that we talked about in the prior episode. As you're saying, the Pfizer researchers submitted clear data that circulating antibodies in the blood decline significantly with time after vaccination, and they have less virus-killing ability against the Delta variant than they had against the original strain. As we said, we don't yet know if from a clinical perspective, this means that people are at higher risk, and that's why these intermediate measures are often used. The accelerated approval of the Alzheimer's drug was based on his intermediate findings. The challenge with certain medications to take care of diseases that have great risk is that it can take a long time to prove their ultimate efficacy. And that's why, as an example, with cancer drugs, This accelerated approval is often given based upon an intermediate finding like tumor shrinkage rather than waiting the years that would be required to measure long-term survival. But think about it this way, with a lethal disease that has killed over 600,000 people and a clear change in antibody levels, it would be easy for the FDA to look at the data, and approve a third vaccine shot for COVID-19. Certainly easier than approving an Alzheimer's drug that completely failed in one of two trials and only had the slightest improvement in the second one. But it didn't. As we said in the broadcast on this topic, the new culture of the FDA is around rapid approval of never-before treatable diseases. It's not what it has been historically protecting patients from devastating complications. As such, for this federal agency, a new medication for a disease with no current treatment would be highly valued, creating esteem, prestige, rather than approval of a vaccine that had already been approved for two doses, and is now being asked simply to expand to a third one, if you look at the impact on lives saved, if you look at the likely probability of one versus the other working, you would assume that the FDA would approve the third booster and reject the Alzheimer's drug. Culture isn't logical, but it is very powerful.
0: Robbie, I've read that a number of healthcare workers still have not been vaccinated. Why is that and what can be done? Jeremy, unfortunately, you're right.
1: And I'm not exactly sure why that is. When the media talks about healthcare workers, it's everyone in a hospital, a long term nursing facility, or a physician's office. It's not just the doctors. And uncaring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients. I discuss in detail how physicians for centuries used repression and denial to generate the courage needed to put themselves in harm's way, such as during the plague that devastated Europe in the medieval period or early in the COVID-19 pandemic when there was not enough protective gear in our hospitals and ERs. That repression and denial is now part of the broader medical culture. But at the same time, not only has been helpful at times of crisis, but at other times it's harmed both doctors and patients. Research shows that doctors fail to wash their hands, going from one patient room to the next, one third of the time. The reason is that in the culture of medicine, doctors are healers. And that self-perception makes them certain they can't be the spreaders of disease despite the illogical nature of that conclusion. And among the many individuals who work in hospitals, there are some who based on ethnic and racial mistreatment in the past continue to distrust the current medical system despite being part of it. With a disease like COVID-19 that inflicts the maximum risk on people with compromised health, There's no doubt that doctors and staff alike, regardless of whether they provide medical care, clean the room or perform the tests ordered, risk compromising the health of patients when they're not vaccinated, even when they wear a mask. And given the overwhelming data on the safety and efficacy of the vaccine, I don't believe it's fair. Although I recognize that some listeners won't agree. I think the healthcare institutions have an ethical and moral obligation to do everything in their power to protect the people coming for care. And I believe that comes before individual freedoms. Moreover, the courts agree. Two recent cases stand out. The first was a decision by US District Judge Damon Lichty, who ruled that Indiana University could demand proof of COVID-19 vaccination before students, faculty, and staff came to campus this fall. Medical and res- religious exemptions were allowed. The lost suit had been brought by eight students who claimed the variety of reasons that this requirement violated the guarantees of medical privacy, infringed on their individual freedom, and put them at medical risk since they pointed out that the FDA approval was given on an emergency, not a permanent basis. The judge opined that the health of all superseded these personal concerns. And that goes along with the ruling that we discussed in a previous episode of the hospital in Texas that required vaccination proof from employees or terminated them and the courts in that case also held that these actions to protect patients were legitimate and more important than the individual concerns of the workers in the facility. I think the first step if we want to maximally protect people is to mandate vaccination for all individuals who could transmit the virus to patients, patients who have little choice except to be in a healthcare facility. If individuals fear the vaccine, then they can undergo frequent weekly or biweekly testing to ensure that they're not carrying the virus. The Healthcare consequences and risk of death are simply too great. Yesterday, the American Medical Association, along with the American Hospital Association and the American Nurses Association and 50 other groups came out in favor of this type of approach. In addition, the Department of Veterans Affairs said that all employees who work in a VA health facility, whether a hospital, clinical, long-term care location will be required to be vaccinated. This is a major deviation from the unwillingness of President Biden to require vaccination for federal employees we even saw the city of New York, the mayor announced that all workers will be required to become vaccinated. And the state of California will also require that workers be vaccinated or testing. It's clear that as the Delta variant surges, momentum is building for an increased mandatory vaccination requirement. And for anyone who wonders if mandating a vaccine is a new phenomenon, George Washington, in 1777, mandated that all soldiers in the military receive the smallpox vaccine. At that time, the risk of not being vaccinated was too great for the American nation in it its fledgling state, and protecting the soldiers and their health was a high national priority. When it comes to the general population who aren't vaccinated, we're learning more about their hesitancy. About a quarter of them say they'd get the vaccine if it were available in the doctor's office or if they were provided with paid time off. And then there are a small number who say that if a celebrity or someone from their community whom they respected endorsed it, that would tip the scales. But the majority of those unvaccinated said that they won't take the vaccine regardless of what is done or who promotes it. And that's worrisome for our nation. You know, it's ironic, Jeremy, that vaccinated people are the ones most concerned about the risks of becoming sick when seeing friends or going to the grocery stores, while those unvaccinated remain unconcerned. When it comes to vaccines, none of this resistance makes logical sense, but the hesitancy remains major and increasingly hardened in place. We're going to have to resolve this if we want our nation to become free of the dangers that currently exist, whether one looks at it from a hospital perspective, chance of dying perspective, or the economic recovery that has started to gain traction but is slowly starting to slip.
0: Robbie, mean, a listener wrote that he had COVID-19, but he's fully recovered. He asked, what's the data on the need for a vaccine?
1: It's looking like the immune system does best when it not only encounters the virus or the spike proteins of the vaccines, but then is exposed a second time. And this is particularly true when it comes to the Delta virus. Researchers publishing in Nature have shown that people who have received two shots of the mRNA vi- vaccine have a strong antibody response against the new strain, while those who've received only one shot or those who have been infected but haven't had any vaccination don't neutralize the virus very well. People who have recovered from COVID seem to get relatively well protected after a single shot, although current recommendations remain for them to receive two doses. The ability of the vaccines to prevent severe infection has been well proven, and there's now increasing evidence of its ability to diminish transmission. According to the CDC, states in which less than 50% of the residents are vaccinated are experiencing three times higher rate of new diseases than the states in which half of the population are vaccinated. And Vermont, that leaves the country with over two thirds of its people being vaccinated, has the lowest new case rate in the nation, with only one person for 100,000 individuals becoming infected each day. Extrapolated to the 300 million Americans, our country would only have 3,000 new cases a day if everyone were fully vaccinated. According to the head of the CDC, 99% of deaths in June were among the unvaccinated. And yet only 57% of Americans, 12 or older, are fully vaccinated. Hopefully listeners in the 43% who remain unprotected will explain why. A Conversation is the best way to identify the issues that remain. And out of that, clarify any per- misperceptions that might exist.
0: I heard about a nerve problem from the vaccine in addition to blood clotting and heart problems that we've discussed before. Can you explain what it is and whether or not people should be worried?
1: The Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been linked to a rare medical problem, one that we see with other vaccines, such as the one to prevent shingles and the one against the flu. Relative to the COVID-19 vaccine, there have been a handful of cases of what is called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And this is among, mi- amongst millions of recipients. Guillain-Barre is a rare neurological disorder which the person's immune system attacks the person's nerves causing paralysis of the muscles innervated by that nerve and it often follows a viral infection. Usually the problem is only temporary. Based on these cases that have been reported so far, the FDA has added a risk warning about this potential complication to the J&J vaccine label. So far, the complication has occurred, mainly in men over the age of 50. According to the CDC, this problem happens in about one in a million people in general, but in three to five per million following the vaccine. To date, the higher incidence of Guillain-Barre hasn't occurred in people who received either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. And for this reason, there's speculation that the complication might actually just come from the harmless adenovirus, that carries the mRNA into the patient rather than the mRNA itself. This possibility is consistent with the association of the British AstraZeneca vaccine, which also uses an adenovirus to inject the mRNA, as opposed to the Pfizer and Moderna that don't use a viral vector, but instead just inject the mRNA directly. As is true for all the other rare complications, when you put them all together, the risk of severe infection and death from COVID-19 exceeds the danger for the vaccine itself based on 150 million Americans who've been fully vaccinated to date.
0: Robbie, what's happening with sports teams?
1: Jeremy, as you know, the Olympics are underway. The COVID-19 cases in Tokyo where they're being held have now reached the highest level since the start of the pandemic. And as could be predicted, a growing number of athletes, including several high profile ones from the US, have tested positive but unable to compete. The majority of Japanese citizens continue to oppose the games going on in their country, fearing that with 18,000 athletes and staff there is the potential for a super spreader event. And the problems with COVID are not just in the Olympics. In baseball, we've recently seen a series canceled between the New York Yankees and Boston Red Sox after six Yankee players tested positive for COVID-19, several of whom had breakthrough infections after being vaccinated. What the experience shows is that the risk that the Delta variant poses is real, but the ability of the vaccine to make the disease that results relatively mild rather than life-threatening is very positive. And with the start of the NFL training camps beginning in a couple of weeks, there are four teams, Washington, Indianapolis, Arizona, and the LA Chargers, with fewer than half of their players vaccinated, while 10 teams led by Pittsburgh, Miami, Carolina, and Denver have vaccination rates of at least 85%. Overall, about three-fourths of players are vaccinated. The NFL, however, has said that it does not plan to cancel games this season as it did in the last, and that teams that can't compete due to COVID-19 will forfeit the scheduled games, and the players on both teams will not be paid for that week. It's likely that these penalties will drive players to become vaccinated, whether from personal concerns With simply peer pressure. And according to internal memos, vaccinated versus unvaccinated players will be identified, probably by different colored wristbands and unvaccinated individuals will have daily testing, be required to wear a mask and be unable to eat with teammates or leave the hotel when traveling. Vaccinated players won't have these restrictions. I predict that these penalties will further drive up the percentage of players choosing to be vaccinated, and the NFL could become the league that is most vaccinated by the time the first real season game begins later this fall.
0: Robbie, with schools opening next month, what are the current recommendations?
1: Jeremy, there are the official rules which are set by each state, and then there are the recommendations of various medical organizations. The biggest changes come in the latter category. Specifically, the American Academy of Pediatrics issued the recommendation that everyone older than two years of age, teachers, administrators, and students, that they all should wear a mask when in school, regardless of their vaccination status. The Academy also said that it strongly recommends a return to full-time in-person education and that everyone should be vaccinated the chair of the Academy's Council on School Health pointed out the incredibly heartbreaking toll that COVID-19 has had on children. Something we focused on, on multiple prior episodes of Coronavirus the Truth. Getting kids back to interacting with their peers is a national priority. For elementary and middle school kids, socialization is just as vital to their development and success as educational skills.
0: Robbie, our Good News segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. Uh, What's good this week?
1: Jeremy, for the past two months, the Good News segment has been about the continued improvements in infection and death rates and the fun that comes from being able to engage in cultural and athletic experiences for those who have been vaccinated. This time, the only good news is the continued protection that is happening with the vaccines in individuals who have received two doses. Unfortunately, the gap in protection between this part of the population and those individuals who remain unvaccinated is growing and disturbing. Phrased differently, the good news is that we have the ability to put this pandemic behind us, at least until there's a viral mutant that proves resistant to the currently available vaccines. But the bad news? is we are unlikely to seize this opportunity as a nation unless we're willing to mandate it.
0: Rabbi, we continue to hear from listeners that they enjoy our efforts to expand the material on the podcast beyond COVID-19 and the coronavirus. What's the big story this week?
1: The biggest news is the expansion of Medicare in the $3.5 trillion spending package that the Democrats are planning to pass through Congress using reconciliation. It would increase what Medicare covers to include dental, hearing, and vision benefits. It would make the enhancements of the Affordable Care Act that were passed this year permanent. And it would close the care gaps in the states that chose to reject the added federal funds that are available for Medicaid to include people not just at 100% of the poverty level, but up to 150%. What it doesn't do is lower the eligibility age for Medicare, implement Medicare for all, or even create a public option And this way, President Biden continues to look for ways to expand on the added coverage that was passed when he was President Obama's vice president, but not take any actions that would make bipartisan support completely impossible. The most interesting question will be the funding for this program. With the president having promised not to tax people earning less than $400,000 a year, some centrists in his party are unwilling to deficit funded proposal, and for this reason, they'll have to find cost cuts to offset the expense increase. Drug prices, particularly those paid by Medicare, will be at the top of the list, something that the pharmaceutical industry is bound to oppose. Jeremy, I assume that you know people who have chosen not to be vaccinated. What reasons have they given? And how have you responded?
0: Robbie, most of the people I know at this point have been vaccinated. I wasn't one of the ones that rushed out to be vaccinated as I wanted to see how a larger uh, population responded to it before I got it. Um, I do have some friends though that have not been vaccinated yet, though a very, very small number. And the reason they've given me is simple. It's a brand new vaccine. It is still under emergency use, not under full FDA approval. Um, You explained to me that this was just a technicality and not anything that actually impacts how the FDA views safety of the vaccine. Uh, They've told me that they have not seen the long-term risks of the vaccine yet. They want to know why they should get vaccinated for a virus they would almost certainly survive from, especially if they're young and healthy. I have friends on the political left who have been anti-vaccine for a number of years and do the whole vegan, not want to put anything unnatural in my body lifestyle. They've stayed anti-vaccine on this one. And I have friends on the political right who were never anti-vaccine before. They are now reluctant on this one due to the politicization of the virus. They are hesitant to get the vaccine because they do not trust the people telling them to get it. I think that this is one of the major issues with the hyper-politicization of the virus. My friends on the right who are reluctant to get the vaccine point to tweets from journalists such as Joanne Reed, Brian Stelter, Chris Hayes, Rachel Maddows, and others from October and November of last year about how they would never trust a rushed vaccine from the Trump administration. They said it was impossible to make a vaccine that fast, and if it was, there would be no way it would be safe. These are the same people who then a few short months later, once Biden is in office, have criticized anyone for having any sort of reluctance taking it. They also point to media outlets that in one article said the massive Black Lives Matter protests were not super spreader events but outdoor Trump rallies were super spreader events and family gatherings were dangerous. They feel like they've been dehumanized by the media on the left and the Democratic leadership having been called deplorables or maggots, which is a a combination of the word mega and maggot, these people who call them that and who have said these things are the same ones who are criticizing them now for their reluctance. This is having the opposite of the desired effect. When they share their feelings with me, I totally see where they're coming from. The political divide in America is dangerous. The politicians and media that have driven this divide on both sides of the aisle need to know that encouraging this division has consequences. To sum it up, my friends on the left who were against vaccines because they bought into the whole MMR vaccine causes autism or they just don't want to put anything unnatural in their body have stayed vaccine hesitant. My friends on the political right are newly hesitant specifically to this vaccine due to the politicization of the pandemic and their distrust of democratic leadership and left-leaning media. Some of my friends they're just waiting for that full FDA approval of the vaccines for that added level of confidence in their safety. What I say to my friends who are still vaccine hesitant is this. I totally understand where you're coming from. I mean, it's a new vaccine that was made in record time. Public health leaders, the media and politicians have not been great about communicating with the public on this one. Robbie, even the whole debacle with the new Alzheimer's drug and FDA only erodes public confidence in that organization too. Uh, Like I said, what I tell my friends that haven't been vaccinated, and granted that's only a very small handful of people at this point, is to talk to their trusted family doctor and ask their doctor any questions they have. Then after that, they need to make the decision that they feel is best for them, I'm actually personally against any sort of vaccine mandate or passport. I think it's perfectly normal for people to be reluctant to get such a new vaccine. That being said, I encourage them to at least have a conversation with their primary care doctor. Robbie, and and like some of my friends have alluded to, I I believe that once this vaccine gets full FDA approval, as opposed to just the emergency use, that will help raise confidence among some of the vaccine hesitant as well.
1: Jeremy, if you were invited to attend a big family reunion that would require
0: you to fly,
1: would you go, and would
0: you bring your son? Robbie, as you know, I hate airports and flying with a passion anyway, so I'd probably try to avoid that at all possible and just drive. Um, that being said, if I had to, I think at this point I'd be fine, uh, to bring him at this point in his young life, uh, seeing family, uh, social development, mental health, et cetera, are extremely important to him. I mean, he's only going to be that age once. I mean, at his age and health, he's at such a small risk of serious illness or death. I feel like him suffering from mental health issues and isolation Uh, from not having a good childhood is at greater risk to him right now than COVID-19. Robbie, in our last episode, you presented data on life expectancy based on an article from JAMA, Open Network. This week, the CDC presented the official numbers and they look even worse. What do they tell us about COVID-19 and their overall healthcare system?
1: Jeremy, as we discussed, life expectancy declined more in 2020 than at any time since World War II, a full year and a half decline in longevity. And as we might have predicted, it impacted black and Hispanic individuals two to three times more than white patients. COVID-19 contributed 74% of the decline from 78.8 years of life expectancy in 2019 down to 77.3 years in 2020. For African-Americans, the decline was 2.9 years. The Hispanic community experienced a 3.7-year drop. The difference between these two groups, however, was less about the severity of the disease than the relatively younger age of the Hispanic population, which pulled down the longevity disproportionately more as a result of individuals dying. Phrased differently, if there were two people who would be expected to die at 80, and one dies prematurely in each group, the impact on the average is very different if the loss of life happens to a 40-year-old versus a 60-year-old. One way, the average life expectancy drops only to 70, while in the other case, it drops all the way down to 60, even though we're talking about one patient dying in each group. COVID was not the only contributor. Opioid deaths, homicidal deaths, deaths from diabetes, and deaths from chronic liver disease all contributed to the reduced life expectancy. And on one hand, you can blame all this on COVID-19. Isolation, anxiety, produced sugar craving, alcohol abuse. But look a little deeper. And what you see are more foundational factors at work. As an example, in the years 2018 to 2020, this is the pre-COVID-19, the US decrease in life expectancy was 8.5 times greater than in other economically advantaged countries. And go back a little bit more, and the longevity had diminished for three years running beginning in 2015, the failures of the American healthcare system and the impact on life expectancy in Americans is not just a COVID factor; it's one that has been part of American healthcare for almost a decade. It's a problem that also involves the culture of American medicine. Compared to the United States, we overvalue intervention. We're into value prevention. We elevate specialty care and fail to appreciate the importance of primary care. We invest our healthcare dollars in expensive machines that often produce little benefit, and we ignore the social determinants of health. The culture of medicine in the United States is different than other countries. That's why I wrote the book on caring. The medical culture has allowed our nation to lead the world in innovation and heroics but it also has caused life expectancy of Americans to be five years fewer than for people in dozens of other nations, including Australia, Switzerland, Israel, France, and Singapore, to name but a few. COVID-19 was responsible for a massive loss of life last year, but our broken healthcare system and its medical culture have also contributed significantly to the US dropping all the way down to 26th in the world and life expectancy
0: overall as well. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.